if you want to position yourself like you as a speaker, then you need to have some samples of you speaking on your website. (laughs) And I can tell you that what producers and and, and chase producers and writers do is the first thing people do is Google you. It's the easiest thing to do. So if they Google you and they come up your website and you're not, your stuff isn't together right away, you're probably not going to get called for whatever it is that you want. Right. Because it doesn't look like you're ready. You're not prime time ready. So I always tell people, make sure that your your website is on point, make sure that your social media, you know, is reflective. It's not, I discourage people, business people from making their social media personal, right? If you want people to take you seriously, you shouldn't be having yourself in, you know, bikini shots or (laughs) different things on your stuff. That's open to everybody to see, right? You're listening to the Grinding Gratitude Show. I am Danny Stone, and I've dedicated my entire life to helping people win. Win in their careers, win in their businesses, and win in their lives. This podcast is going to help you get on your grind and hustle and create the life you love and walk in gratitude along the journey. Each episode, I'll teach you tools and tactics and bring you conversations with experts that will help you turn your passion into a thriving online business. Life isn't about wishing for something greater. It's about making it happen. There's something special about you. Grind it till you find it. Be grateful when you get it. Welcome to the Grind and Gratitude Show. I am Danny Stone, also known as Coach Stone. If this is your first time tuning in, thank you so much. If you've been listening over the last three or four months, we really, really appreciate you. Make sure that you leave a review. Now, every week... You know, I come and I bring you great content. Sometimes I have the great pleasure of bringing you really amazing guests. And this week, guess what? We have a really amazing guest. And let me just tell you a little bit about her before we jump into the conversation. Fenella Bruce is a veteran television producer and writer. She's now at the helm of FKB Media Solutions. Uh, She's a media consultant that finds solutions for media problems. Having worked in the field of journalism for over 20 years, Fenella has produced both of Canada's national morning shows, Your Morning in Canada AM. She's been the senior writer or producer at numerous major market television stations, including CTV News Channel, CTV National, CP24, City TV, Toronto One, and BET. For six years, she's taught media theory at Centennial College. Fenella joined the board in 2018 and became the vice president in 2019 and has been active in fundraising, media exposure, and sponsorship for Dr. Roz's Healing Place. She decided to volunteer her time and skills to the organization because she believes strongly in Dr. Roz's mission and holistic approach towards healing. Fenella has also served on the board of Tropicana Community Services and is a recipient, now I love this, of 2020 100 ABC Women Award. Amazing. Congratulations on that award. And welcome to the show, Fenella. Thank you. You have to tell them what ABC stands for. They might think I just got the alphabet award. <laughs> <laughs> ABC is, what was that? The uh, Accomplished Black Canadian Women. Wow, that's, uh, that's awesome. What, what did that feel like when you got that award? Um, well, I was surprised. I first found out about the nomination. So I was um, a little surprised with that because I 
quietly do what I do and I, I don't do it for accolades or, or recognition. I just do what I do. So I was surprised when uh, it was Valerie Augustine who um, nominated me. And then when I was told that I was selected, I was blown away. I was really, I mean, and it, and it sounds cliche, but you always hear it when people get awards at like the NWCP, you know, Image Awards and that sort of thing. When it comes from your own, it just means a little bit more. And so because it was a group of uh, Black women, Black elders, who, um, you know, decided that I was worthy of, of being one of these 100 accomplished Black Canadian women for this year, um, it really meant a lot to me. Well, that's amazing. And I mean, you deserve it. You wouldn't win it if you didn't deserve it. But I know what you mean. I'm, I'm the same way when it comes to awards. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that's awesome. So talk a little bit about your 20 years in media as a producer and writer. Like, what was that experience like for you? And how did you get get started in, in media? Okay, so yeah, I started when I was nine. No. I was <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you're looking kind of young. When you said 20 years, I was like, wow, she's young. <laughs> and it's more than 20 years, believe it or not. I started, I went to uh, Ryerson. I did my graduate degree in journalism. And right out the gate, maybe about a year after I had graduated. I, during that time, I was an entrepreneur. And then um, I was doing public relations and I was doing just freelance writing and that sort of thing. And then I got my first opportunity because I'd been volunteering at City TV as well. And uh, I got my first writing opportunity um, working part-time on breakfast television, writing um, for then host Kevin Frankish, um, The News. And so, man, it was overwhelming because you have to think about it. I was, you know, my early 20s, kid from Scarborough, and <laughs> I'm now writing for this major uh, number one morning show, major network in Toronto. My other writers, four, four writers, including myself, they were three white men older than me. And my supervising producers, they were rotating uh, white men. So this is the environment I was walking into, newly graduated and <laughs> first job and wow. writing for Kevin Frankish about, you know, world affairs and local affairs and all those sort of things. And then to boot, I mean, people see the show that comes on at six. Well, now it comes on at five, but at the time it came on at six. But you have to understand, you have to be there at four. <laughs> A.M. That's in, yeah, A.M. in the morning. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Which means you have to get up at 3 a.m. or earlier. And I was living again in Scarborough, so I had to get downtown. Right. So and the kicker was it was uh, it was part time. So I was just going to be working on breakfast television to start. So really, I was getting up for four hours of work. Right. But it was my opportunity. It was my foot in the door. So. You know, I would drive there. I started the job in October and I would drive down as, as it got colder and it was just me and, and the cops on the DDP. <laughs> I got to know the spot. Nobody else on the highway. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I had my first gig. And so it quickly from there, I'm a, I'm a writer at heart. So that's my talent and I, I find it very um, easy to do. And so that talent was recognized very quickly. And I think within four or five months, I was offered a full-time position. Wow. And so I started, I moved from Backfest Television and I started 
writing for the six o'clock news and six and 11 o'clock news. So I did that for, I think it was maybe four, four years, three or four years. I was promoted to senior writer and then I started producing. And so from then I have been producing for, I'd say about 15 or 17 years of my career has been producing. So I produced every show at City, 6, 11, weekends, noon, <laughs> uh, wow. City Online. And I uh, then left. I had some kids. <laughs> and I took some time off with those one, my little ones. And then I came back and there was a, there was a, a station that was starting out called Toronto One. And so I wanted the opportunity to, to begin to start with something grassroots because actually let me backtrack for one quick second. When I was sure. at City TV was actually when um, CP24 was formed and everybody, you know, loves and watches CP24. I was there at the beginning when the concept came up, the screen, my boss did it on a napkin. <laughs> like, wow. It's a true story. And, you know, figured out, you know, describe the screen that, you know, he wanted to have and, so I helped in, in building that station and produced on that station when it first launched and kind of got the whole wheel going and all that sort of stuff. Well, I think that's amazing. And I think one thing that people have to know about CB24 is it's like a 24-hour news network. So even though they had programming, there was always a ticker along the bottom yeah. that showed you what was happening in the city and around the world in terms of news. So I think people need to understand that because that was like, it was something different, I'm sure, at the time. There was yeah. nothing else like that. It was either you hated it or you loved it, right? <laughs> and now I think everybody loves it because everybody's doing it. Like most news um, organizations now have the weather, they have the ticker at the bottom, they have this information screen going. You know, it was before the time where, you know, we're, we're now multitasking with everything and we can be on our phones and watching something at the same time, we think. And so that was the early days of that. So okay. when I was uh, off with my kids, I was like, oh, okay, the station starting up, I would like another grassroots opportunity to build something, you know, from ground up. So I went to Toronto One and I worked there for um, a few years and that station changed into Sun TV, just ownership. Uh, they told the station and I wasn't really a big fan of Sun TV. It was a little too um, conservative for me. Okay. And so I decided to go back to city where I, I was always welcome. <laughs> I, I always say you ne never burn your bridges. Never. So I went to, back to the city and I um, produced there. I did series and I did uh, city online again and this the noon the twelve o'clock news. And then after that, I was at uh, CTV for Canada AM for like about nine years. Um, before that sh that that show was canceled, and then I moved to Your Morning, and then I went to CTV News Channel and was producing there. So I think you asked me about my career, and that's sort of where it ended in terms of journalism. And what I liked about it is that every day was different. Yeah, every day was different, different story, different you know um, people, different walks of life. You kind of, as a journalist, you have to be unless you're doing a beat right but you generally have to be an expert on everything so it's always your mind is always fueled with information and i find it very you know interesting i'm an avid reader so it's just also being able to process things very quickly particularly when you're writing you have to be able to summarize things very quickly 
And I liked that sort of challenge. So like, you know, you've said a few times that like writing is your love and your passion. So how did the whole producing thing work for you? Like, was it, did you find that really challenging as opposed to the writing? Like, you know, how was that whole producing experience for you over the years? Well, with the writing, my boss at the time recommended that I start as a writer because the writer gets to interact with everyone, the reporters, uh, the camera person, the editors, the assignment desk. So you get a good sense of the newsroom, what everybody's role is and what they do. And generally speaking, most writers go into producing because once you know what everybody does and how it works, right, then that's the first step to becoming a producer. Right. when you're a producer, you're still writing. Yeah. <laughs> you're correct. You're vetting, right? I, I would vet scripts. I would rewrite scripts. I would still have to, um, you know, use my writing skills. So you have to be able to write if you're a good producer. Some can't, but you should be able to write if you're a good producer. It's, it's still part and parcel of the, of the responsibilities. So I liked producing uh, when, I got, when I got a little taste of it. I liked producing because you get to decide on the vision of whatever it is you're doing, right? If it's the newscast or if it's a show, you know, it, it, it's, it's what, you're, what you're envisioning for people and for them to consume. And I'm a person who I, I like to be uh, behind the scenes. I'm not necessarily a person who's in front of the camera. I will say, as most journalism students think when I was in school, I was like, yeah, I want to be a reporter because that's all we saw, right? right? Like that's what people think when they think about journalism. you're like in front of the camera or you're, you know, writing a story. But there are so many other roles that I didn't realize until I started volunteering in the newsroom that were open to me and that I should, should consider, right? And producers are decision makers. They're gatekeepers. They're the ones who hold the power, right? To decide whether at the end of the day, a story gets covered or the way it's covered or, you know, what reporter is assigned, um, how a show looks, how, you know, the graphics look, like it all comes back to the producer. And, and that's a good thing. But then also when things go wrong, it comes back to the producer. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yes, yes. That's a lot of responsibility and a lot of pressure for one person to, you know. It can be. But if you have a good team and if you have a team that respects you, then it, it's not a, a difficult job. Okay. Right? You have to know how to uh, work with people and have people want to work with you and to do their best job and to, to make sure that, you know, the show looks successful and everything works well. So when you were in school, right, did you see a lot of women of color and people on television when you were in journalism school? When I was in journalism school, I was the only black person in journalism school. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> okay so i did my ba at u of t right in english and i graduated and then i because at the time prior to that i wasn't sure i wanted 100 percent to go into journalism so i wanted to keep my options open and i knew when i was at u of t because i was writing for the school paper i was running the radio station that yeah i think i want to get into media so then i looked into programs, right? Because I had actually been accepted to Carlton's journalism program, the four-year program, undergrad program. And I decided 
that I was going to just keep my options open. I didn't want to be locked in in case it wasn't what I wanted to do. But I, when I realized that what it was, I decided to look for a graduate program, which is what Ryerson Smarson offers, and now it's a master's program. And I applied to it. Now, this program only accepts 60 people. Wow. And 700 people applied. Wow. It. <laughs> so it, it's not an easy program to get into, right? And so when I made the cut and you had to go through like an interview pro- process, you had to write an essay, you had to do a current events test, your transcripts, uh, your um, showing that you have like your clippings, your work that you had, you know, when you were in school or, or wherever, right? So you have to really have a whole package to get into. So when I got in, I was very excited. So, but when I walked in the classroom and then it was just me. <laughs> <laughs> did you question it, it at cool. that time? Were you like, is this the right thing for me? Or did you just keep like, I- I'll be the only one. What did you think when you walked in the class and you were like, I'm the only black person here? It's growing up in Canada, you get used to that. So it wasn't a shock to my system. I was a little spoiled uh, at U of T because I had a cluster, like I was in the AXA, the African Caribbean Student Association. So we had a group of, you know, I had a, a circle of black people that I hung around. So I wasn't feeling, I mean, I'll say I was the only one in the lecture halls where there's like a thousand, but I wasn't feeling lonely. I felt that at Ryerson because I literally was the only one. And it reminded me of back to elementary school where that was definitely the case in the wow. school, right? It was myself, my brother, and maybe like five other black kids, yeah. right? So it did remind me of that. And, and I think as you get higher in the education system, you find that. Particularly, I think more, you know, there's more black, definitely more black women than black men, right? So I didn't have a lot of black uh, role models on television or, or in the media, but I had a few. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them was Jojo Chinto. And he was at City TV uh, at the time. And he was a reporter, the crime reporter. And he actually came to my, my class at Ryerson and he spoke. And at the end of his, his um, discussion, he said, you know, I'm doing this series uh, on crime. I can't remember what the topic was, but it was a series. You know, let me know, you know what you guys think about it, right? So anybody who came to speak because I was in a classroom of, of, of kids who had connections. Yeah. I didn't have any connections, right? <laughs> My parents weren't, you know, <laughs> in, you know, professional society like that, right? So my mother's a nurse. My dad worked for CN Rail. That was, you know, my big connections, right? right. I could get you thermometers and stuff. So <laughs> <laughs> for anybody who came to the class, I would try and, you know, see if I could, you know, follow up with them or, or, you know, connect with them in some way or shadow them. In any way, because I knew I had to get my foot in the door somehow um, once school finished, because I, I wouldn't have the luxury of saying, hey, can I intern at, you know, my dad's friend's station or whatever. That wasn't right. for me. So when JoJo came and I saw someone who looked like me, right, I was like, okay, this could be an opportunity. So when he made that challenge to the class, I, of course, I watched his series. And then, and I remember this, because I did it from school, and this is back, this will tell you, I'll be dating myself. I went to the payphone. <laughs> <laughs> For those who don't know, a payphone is a phone that's just outside on the side of the road, and you put in a nickel or a quarter, and you make a phone call. And yeah. you know what's so funny about that? I was driving by 
a Walmart the other day mm-hmm. and I saw a payphone. I saw somebody on the payphone and I thought, this is crazy. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to the payphone and I called him. I was nervous. I called him and I, and I, you know, I told him I watched it and then this is what I thought. I don't remember what I told him. And then um, he invited me to come down to shadow him at the station come out, you know, see what it's like to put together stories. I was like, of course, right? So I went out with him. It was myself and this other uh, wannabe reporter, Patrick Reynolds, who actually ended up working at City TV for some time and then City Line as a videographer. And so we, you know, went and I went out with him and it was, you know, it was interesting and, and, and I was keen and he introduced me to you know, different people in the newsroom at the time. And then he said, you know, anytime you want to come down and, you know, uh, just absorb the environment, what's happening, just let me know. If you want to help me with uh, any of my series, like, you know, time coding tapes or whatever. One of the best things he, advice he gave to me is that you want to be in this space so people see you, right? So when an opportunity comes up, they think about you. And you don't have to be doing a gazillion things, but you need to be in the same sort of room. (laughs) Yeah. But you know, Fenella, I think this is a great point because, you know, a lot of people don't understand the power of mentorship, the power of getting in the same space as people who are already doing what you're doing. You know, there's a lot of people who would have said, well, I don't have connections like these other people in my class, so maybe this isn't for me. And the fact that you move forward with that, I think that's a a great lesson for people to understand. Mm -hmm. You know, try to get in the same space as people who are doing what you're doing. And if you physically can't watch their videos, go to their website, absorb all of their content. And I think that's a, a really great point that you just made there. No, and definitely. And I can tell you, um, there was times I was like, okay, I'm just sitting here doing nothing, wasting my time, or I could be out with my friends hanging out or whatnot. I mean, you know, and it's a cliche, but you got to keep your eye on the prize, right? right? So the long game. So even though I might have felt at times like, okay, what am I doing here? Or these people are looking at me like, why is she always hanging around? Or <laughs> <laughs> This girl doesn't have a house to go to. <laughs> is she homeless? <laughs> she used to always be here, right? I was like, this is my my chance to get a job, right? So I was going to be in there. I was going to practice writing. I was going to give it to other people to say, hey, you got a sec to just look over my stuff. No pressure when you get a chance. So I can get feedback. So they can see my skills, right? right? And see what I'm doing. And, you know, I'm not afraid to speak to people, right? I'm not afraid to... You know, put myself out there and take feedback and I want to learn. So all those things you're showing them and it's not about a paycheck, right? It's about laying down that, you know, foundation for opportunity, right? So I didn't go in thinking I was going to be a producer. And it wasn't until that sort of being in that environment and seeing those different jobs and then, you know, seeing and at the time, like I, I was the first black female producer, And probably (laughs) I'm going to date myself again, maybe in the city for a major market television station at the time. Right. I didn't really know anybody else who was pretty There's people on camera. And so there, to your question, was there anybody I saw? There was, there was people that I reached out to, Therese Sears. She was a reporter at Global. I went and I I reached out to her and um, went and talked to her about, you know, getting into the business. Uh, Noelle Richardson, 
she was an anchor at CDC and I went and I, and I spoke with her um, to get some advice about getting into the business. So there was, a, it was a sprinkling. I wouldn't say it was a whole lot because I could just name them probably on one hand, Right. but you know, and Jojo, of course, but there was a few um, that I reached out to uh, Ron Fanfare at chair. He helped me when I didn't have, you know, we had to do a class assignment. We had to shadow a reporter. I was beside myself because I did not know anybody who to reach out to right and the assignment wasn't worth a lot but it just the pressure of the fact that like I did not have anybody to call and uh, Ron is actually my, my background is Guyanese he's Guyanese he's a family friend and my mother <laughs> saw me stressed was like let me let me call Ron and see <laughs> You know, he was very gracious with his time and, and he helped me out, right? So those things you, you definitely don't forget, but especially when there are so few, right? Like it was it was definitely helpful for me. No, I mean, that's a great journey. And again, it's it's reaching out to people and asking and, and not being afraid to put yourself out there. So now fast forward to ne- like now or right before you decided to stop working for these major networks and, and get into FKB media. Why did you kind of make that transition out of, you know, mainstream media into doing your own thing? Well, I, I told you when I finished school, I was doing my own sort of business. Right. And I think at the core of it, I've always been an entrepreneur, right? Life gets in the way, you know, I had, children i had a mortgage i had you know (laughs) soccer practice responsibilities (laughs) so i had to focus on those things right and you know the the jobs at at the the tv stations paid the bills the schedule worked uh more or less for for my life at that time right and so when i was at ctv news channel by that time which was the last my last stop my children were adults. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I started to feel the freedom of not having to rush home and take them somewhere. They're both driving at that point, right? Rush home, take them somewhere or, you know, have to be there because, you know, they have to be supervised. And so they were needing me less and less in that capacity. And I started to think about, you know, is this where I want to continue to be? Mm-hmm. And what are the opportunities for me? I had reached the highest position in terms of producing. Did I want to go into a more senior management role? Is that something I wanted? Not really. If you think producing is a lot of stress, <laughs> try being an executive producer, try being oh, wow. a management producer. Then you have real stress because you have a lot of other pressures on you. And I was like, I don't really want to go into my you know, older age feeling you know, that kind of pressure in life, right? I felt that prior to with, you know, like I said, children and work and balance and all those sort of things. And so that was one aspect. Like I wasn't, and I wasn't necessarily feeling challenged anymore. I could do my job very easily with like a quarter of my brain, not even half. Right. So it was something that was like, wasn't challenging me anymore. Right. And so I started to think about what it is that I really wanted to do or had always wanted to do. In that time period as well, there was, there, not even that time period, over the years, there have always been people, particularly from the Black community, who don't know how to access media that would come to me and ask me, right? You know, how do I get my story told or how do I get, 
you know, attention to this or that or whatever. And I would, you know, guide them with, with those things. Right. And towards the end, when I was at CTV, I started doing some stuff for people for PR wise. Right. And I was like, you know, I can actually see myself expanding with all of my sort of different skill sets and having my own sort of business and, you know, seeing how that worked. And the thing was, just like with City TV, CTV, my boss at the time, Liz Travers, she's very, very, I mean, she's one of my, no, she's the best boss that I've ever had, very encouraging to me. And, you know, we had a discussion and she was like, you know, you know that you can always come back. Like there's, there's always going to be a need for producers. So, you know, if for some reason things don't work out or if maybe you just need a little cushion, you can always come back and produce on the weekends or produce part time. And so when she said that to me, it didn't feel as scary, right? Financially, right? That, yeah, you're right. Like I do have a skill set that I can always, you know, do some freelance work if, if, you know, things aren't working out or shaky at the beginning or, um, I can always, you know, go back full time, right? Um, particularly there, or probably at any other station, if I wanted, because of my my expertise, right? So then I started thinking, okay, it's not so much, you know, jumping without a net. <laughs> I yeah. felt a little bit safer about making it. So I decided that I was going to start my own business, right. and I decided that I didn't want to do like public relations and. Although a lot of people know me for that, because that I'm like my PR part of my company is the best PR for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And, and hey, like you just said a whole bunch of things there. But before we even go any further, like I have to let people know that the reason I know you is because you got my wife, Trudy, you know, lots of different media coverage. And, you know, to this day, I mean, she still credits you. She has a regular appearance on a, a national TV program in Canada and it's all because of you. Mm-hmm. And so you know, I know she thanks you a million times for that. <laughs> and, and I do too. And so that's how I know you. So when you said that, yeah, I can understand why you're known for it because you've gotten so many people this in front of the media, right? Yeah. And that's great. But I also, I use, I also still use my producing skills. I produce live stream events. I produced um, live stream events for Miami Carnival wow. for the 126th Street Latin, Street Latin Street Festival in New York. I do uh, webinars, um, which I do for uh, Francis Ann Solomon called wow. in the director's chair. So I use my producing skills still. I use my writing skills. I do a lot of copywriting. I do some ghost writing. I can't say for who because then... Oh, c- come on, just give us one. Just tell, <laughs> tell us one person. No, because their name is on it. So, I mean, this is right. I do copy editing. And so I do uh, media sponsorship proposals because I have a lot of insight in terms of what the media is looking for, what people are looking for in terms of sponsorship deck and all those sort of things. So I, I like to tell people like it's just all of my sort of skills put into one thing, which is why I call myself a media consultant rather than a publicist, right? And although some people will will use it interchangeably for my title, but my media consultant and my company touches like so many different facets. And so I just kind of made up my business. (laughs) You know, but Fenella, you said so many things there. You said a lot of things and, and a lot of things that people need to grab onto because you know, once you had kids, 
you know, a lot of times people have a dream in the back of their mind and something derails them or kind of sidetracks them, whether it's not, not always kids, sometimes it's kids, sometimes you just get comfortably uncomfortable in the job that you're in or the field you're in and just lots of life things. And they kind of just leave it alone and they never go back to it. Mm -hmm. But you have the discipline to kind of follow your curiosity. And I think the other lesson in that is that if you decided to ease into doing something else, you could always go back to doing what you were doing. And I think a lot of people have to understand that. Like, maybe you can't go back to the same company, but you have all of this knowledge and experience that you've been in working in a field for a long time. So you can most likely in many situations find another job. And so I I think that's important for people to understand because people think if I just leave and make the leap and it doesn't work, Mm -hmm. I can never go back to doing what I was doing. So I think that's important for people to catch that. Definitely. And there's no shame in that. I like having control of my destiny. And and the other thing coming back to your point um, about, you know, keeping in mind that you can always get another job. There's no shame in that. There's no shame in going back. Right. And what I also motivated me was that if I can do my job as well as I was doing for someone else and make these companies millions of dollars, then I can do that for me. Like you have to be able to bet on yourself because they're betting on you. That's, That's why right. they hired you. So 100%. why would you bet on yourself? That's so true. You know, I think it's um, it's really like programming, right? Because, you know, oftentimes when we go to school, we're going to school to get a job, right? It's not you're going to school to learn about the amazing skills and attributes and things that you have to offer the world. And so exactly what you said, it's like we get caught up into making this money and solving problems for other people that we don't understand that we can actually do that for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so like when you made that leap, and you decided to kind of put yourself out there, what was going through your mind at that time? Like, yeah, you you were saying, yeah, I think I can do this. But like, were you afraid? Were you excited? What was that whole feeling like when you said, I'm finally making the leap into doing my own thing and working for myself? It was a bit of both. I was, I was nervous, but I was excited about it. And I had started, like I said, doing little things while I was still there. So I actually, they actually, she wanted me to stay. And I was like, I'm too busy. I have to go. So I would work. <laughs> I think shooting was probably one of my clients at that time as well. I, I feel it was around that same time. But I was like, I, I have a lot of things that I have to do. And one of the great advice, well, one of the great bits of advice that I had received was from Justice Donald McLeod, who's a, a good friend of mine. And when I was having that nervous feeling and he was like, listen, what you need to do is Sit down, figure out how much money you need to make for a month, set that as your goal, you know, look at what you can do and what, how you can get to that goal. And then you, you do from there. So he's like, you can work backwards and just say, okay, I want to make whatever, $120,000 a year and break it up that way. But it's better if you just look at, okay, every month I need this much to pay my bills and the rest is gravy. And so when you have that monthly goal, it doesn't seem as daunting to you. And when I did that and I was like, okay, well, look, let me look at what I was making, you know, at, at CTV and it was clearly covering my bills or whatever. And I'm like, I can make that. And I think I could actually make a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> no. once, it, once I kind of like wrapped my head around that and I had, you know, the goals 
right, in mind, right, then I can move forward. Yeah, and I think that's the case for a lot of people. A lot of us give up on our dreams because we don't think it's possible, or we give up on a goal because we don't think it's possible, but we haven't even really sat down and mapped things out. And, and, and the fact that you even said, okay, this is how much money I need to make a month, or this is how I can get started. Or, you know, with me, I used to manage training in the corporate world, and I secretly had a business for like three, maybe even four years, and nobody even knew. I had employees working for me. And when I went in to put in my notice, everybody's like, where are you going? And I said, well, I got a company. My book just came out on Amazon. And people are like, I don't understand. How did you do it? And it was the same people that were complaining about being at this job for nine years, seven, 11. Mm-hmm. And so I think for a lot of people just sit down and understand the numbers, where you are and make a plan. And then it's not as daunting as if it's just something that's out there in the air. So I think that's a really great point that you made as well. Well, exactly. And I, and I did also get some help. I had a job coach. So I also got some help in that area. And just even before I decided I wanted to do business and just, you know, looking at, uh, we did all these different, you know, they have these different, what do you call it, tests or whatever, you know, to you answer and then they can tell you your risk level and all yeah. that sort of stuff. You know, so I did a bunch of those things. It was clearly like I was not meant to stay in some job. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that also gave me the confidence that this was not the place that I need to be, right? And I, I think that people need to not be afraid to ask questions to ask people and to, to, to say, how did you do this? And, and you'd be surprised. People love to share, yeah. right? Their experiences, particularly, you know, they're successful at them. Right. So, and, and, and actually let me, let me, let me clarify that. Not even just if there's a, they're failures as well, because I tell people when things don't work, right. As right. well, I'm not going to just act like everything is all great. <laughs> right. right? So, you know, people want, will give you the cautionary story as well, not just, okay, this is, you know, great and everything's glory and this is how you do it. So I think that you definitely, yes, need to map things out. But I think that if you're working right now, if you're working in the business, I've always, like I said, periodically been doing something on the side. I was a music manager when I was at City TV. That's a whole other story. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to have to bring you back for that. <laughs> wow. But, but I, man- I managed artists. I would, I would leave at 1130 and go and handle flyers and go to the club. And like I was doing, I was always doing something else. And that was pre-kids, but right? I was always doing something else on the side. Well, and again, I think it's it's important for people to understand because we're, we're taught that we should just do one thing right? You know, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, it's a difficult question for, you know, when you're a kid, you dream big, everything. When you're 16, you can become more realistic because of school. Well, I don't know. 18, I don't know. 40, I don't know. You just get caught up in this thing. And it's like, and if you do know, it can only be one thing. And I like the fact that like, we have so many interests and passions. Why does it have to be one thing? Why can't you do two or three different things? If you, if they all make you happy and you can, make money or not even make money. Sometimes you can just do something just for the love of it. Why not? And, and the fact that you did all these things, I think that's, that says a lot about who you are as a person. And yeah, I don't think you were meant to be an employee. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> Good employee, but yes, not, not into, I just couldn't see myself going into my retirement. Like I just, and I looked at people who had been there for like 
30 years and all that sort of stuff. And I was like, I just can't see myself. Like, you know, you do the vision thing. I just couldn't see myself continuing this routine for the next 10 years. And the other thing is, is that I wanted to take the sleep. I didn't want to have regrets, right? I wanted to take the sleep and do this and give it a shot while I was still, you know, young enough to and had my faculties about me and my skills and my contacts and all of those sort of things. And it was either do it now or don't do it at all. Do you ever think about doing something you love for a living? Have you ever thought about making a greater impact in the world? Well, it starts with finding the right passionate idea to launch your amazing online business. I say online business because it gives you the freedom to work from anywhere. Let me help you unlock your big idea. Head over to IamDannyStone.com and sign up for your profitable, passionate idea. So let me ask you, when you decided to make that leap, you know, were there people in your life that were trying to talk you out of it and trying to say that might not be a smart decision? Because, I mean, you know, being a producer was a pretty high level position that you had within the media. So do you have people trying to talk you out of it or or hold you back or who were hating on you for making that decision or, or no? There was, there was a couple who, who questioned it. Right. And, or definitely felt like, Oh, you should, you know, still keep your job before, you know, make sure you have like a full company running, I guess, before leaving. Definitely. I got a, a bit of that for the most part, people were supportive. My parents were supportive, although my father still doesn't know what I do. But <laughs> I'm the same. My mom's like, okay, you got a what? You do what? <laughs> like, okay, I don't really understand it, but if you say so. <laughs> but, you know, so I would say, though, the people that were maybe the naysayers, I hope that it was more out of concern than, than haterade, right? That I think it was. There might have been this like concern for me because you know I, I, I'm a single mother, and so there there might have been concern about like are you going to be able to you know <laughs> survive, right? But other than that, no, I don't think there wasn't anybody who was like for the most part. I've had like the greatest support from from so many people. It's overwhelming, actually. I mean that and, that's great. I mean yeah. So. Like for you, you know, we touched on, like you said, you had to, we all have to overcome challenges in our life and our business. What's a big challenge that you had to overcome in your business? What's something that you really had to, you know, a challenge or a a struggle that you had to kind of overcome in the business? Realizing that I can't do everything. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, I came to that realization um, a couple of months ago because I just had a lot of work. And I was doing everything. And um, a friend of mine was like, you need to get help. (laughs) Straight up, you need to get help. Right? I know that you you think you're a one-woman operation, right? But there's nothing wrong with with getting, you know, an assistant or some help. So I did. And I have an assistant now, um, which is a new experience for me. And so then the next step was being able to delegate. (laughs) (laughs) We, we are on the same page. We're like, I'm completely, we're on this. We're not even on the same page. We're in the same car. We're both driving. The same, I'm exactly the same way. I'm, because you can do it all. You can do you, how you do it, right? Like, you know how to do it. Like, you can't do it like me. Right? So, so 
there's that, right? And and so it's a process and I'm learning it and and it, and it depends on the person as well, right? The young woman that I have worked with me, she's quite good. And she's a person who, if she doesn't know how to do something or she does something incorrect, if you correct her, she's on point. So the learning curve is very, very short. And I, I so I'm fine with people making mistakes. What I'm not fine with is repetitive mistakes, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, so it's a process for me as well to like explain things clearly to make sure that it, it's done properly. And if it's not to see, you know, so that's all like that process, I guess, of being a boss in that, yeah. you know, and in that way, like an employer boss, I was like, oh, I guess I'm like the boss now. <laughs> You're a boss. You've been a boss. I mean, you bossed up and won, you know, winning awards and getting a lot of people in the media. So you've been a boss, but now you're another type of boss. Yeah. Where, you know, someone's like submitting their invoice to me to be paid. I'm like, oh, I'm paying someone like that. <laughs> I'm in charge. So it was, it was adjusting to that definitely for me because for the first um, like couple of years, I just did everything. Right. So it's just learning how to, to delegate. I have another writer that I'm, I've just recently brought on board. That's been a little tough for me because, because I'm a writer, right. To let that sort of go. And so that's been baby steps in terms of bringing him on board and, and trusting him to, you know, to write things how I would like them written. So that's been a struggle for me. Definitely. Yeah, it's hard to let go of, of things that are your baby. You know, even Tyler Perry said that. I don't know what show he was talking about. He was on, he had a writing team for a show or a movie and it didn't really work out. And since then, he just decided he's going to write everything. And, yeah. you know, trust is a big factor. And I think, you know, you know, even he said he has to realize that he has to get back to finding good people to work with. But when it's your baby, it's like, this is my thing. And it's difficult for me to mm-hmm. let it go or to get help or, you know, so I can definitely understand that for sure. Totally. But I think, you know, if you find like, again, the right people and you train them properly, you know, it can relieve a lot for you. Right. And you can focus on, on bigger things. And it's, it's good for the other person. Like Marisa, my, my assistant, it's like, you know, she, I want to learn, right? And this is like hands-on learning from an expert like that I couldn't get elsewhere, mm-hmm. right? So when you can do that as well, it can be rewarding for you too. Yeah. So, you know, you talked about when you first started the lack of sort of diversity in the media, especially behind the camera. Do you see a difference today, like in terms of Canadian media? Do you see more diversity in various roles other than just in front of the camera? Do you, do you see any difference now, like, you know, in 2020? I see some, but certainly not where it should be. There are still newsrooms that don't have, you know, Black writers or producers. Uh, we saw a lot of that coming out with the Black Lives Matter movement. A lot of stories coming out about treatment, unfair payment, right? When you're not part of that inner circle and you're trying to get in, you will, just like I did, you will take any opportunity. So you're thinking, oh, this is great, you know, whatever couple hundred bucks they're giving you, whereas actually it should be a thousand dollars, right? So, but you don't know that because you're not part of that inner circle to know that right so there was a lot of that stuff going on and I think also 
and this is just in general, like society wise, right? We have this sort of thing where you don't talk about pay, you don't talk about money. So people don't know, right? right. What they should be asking or what they should be negotiating. And so there's a lot of that that happens. And I think racialized communities bear the brunt of that, right? Because they, they are on that in those circles to know what they should be, be getting. But definitely, I think that there's room for improvement in the Canadian media landscape. And I would, I know you said behind the camera, definitely, but I would also say on the TV screen as well. Like I was just about to ask you that in terms of lead roles and, and you know, people of color and black people in, in, you know, dramatic roles and lead roles. Again, like, what do you think about that in terms of uh, what's happening here in the Canadian sort of television and entertainment industry? I think it's very, it's lacking. I mean, you, you tell me, you tell me, give me five black TV shows. <laughs> I, I can't. I cannot. Give me three. <laughs> you're, forcing, you're forcing my hand now. I, I don't know. Yeah, this is a, a huge country. You know, there's there's a couple of things, you know, that are on. Town has a lead, um, black lead character. You know, so as you know, um, I do uh, publicity and some brand management for Auntie Jillian. She's on Bell 5 uh, one, and she had a summer run on CTV. But again, that was the sort of thing that came out of the Black Lives Matter movement, right? That should have been already a done, been a done deal. She's been on Bell 5 since last year. So everybody's aware of her. So right. why does it take a movement for her to get on mainstream television? So tell everybody what Auntie Jillian is about. So Auntie Jillian is uh, Canada's first Black Caribbean reality TV show. And so she uh, started off on YouTube and uh, she's a huge following on YouTube. She has over 13 million views on YouTube and it follows her family. She actually, her niece is Latoya, Latoya Forever, who is now on The Real Housewives. Okay. So she used to be on Latoya's YouTube channel giving advice and everybody, oh, Auntie Jillian, Auntie Jillian. And they just set up a YouTube channel for her just her jokes and they didn't put anything up and they got like 15,000 followers with nothing up. (laughs) And so she was like, I think I need to do this channel. Right. And so she started it and it, you know, it's, it's, it's focusing on her family now and her kids and their experiences and the kind of clash between Caribbean and Canadian kids, Caribbean parents and Canadian kids and millennials and zoomers and boomers and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's quite entertaining, but it, it crosses beyond color. Like I've been out with Jillian and I've seen like old white women who are like, hey, Jillian, I love your show. Like she's up at the cottage and people recognize her and, and you know, they can relate to it because it's just about family. Yeah. It's about everybody has family. Right. It's about kids. Right. And it's about that experience and that generational thing. And so the show, I think it's very relatable to, to people beyond you know, skin color and beyond culture. And I'm sort of, you know, questioning or wondering why it doesn't get the same sort of, I guess. Coverage, promotion, coverage. No coverage, because we've gotten, this is the thing, we've gotten tons of promotion, tons of coverage, thanks to me. (laughs) So this is what I'm saying. Everything is there. The product is there, the PR is there, the reach is there, the audience is there. So 
everything is aligned in there. So why aren't people banging on the door to pick up this product? Right. Right. And to develop it. Right. Because if it was a white person who had all these things, it would be a no brainer. It would be done. Right. It'd be a done deal. Right. We wouldn't be talking about it. So that's the sort of thing that I look at in the landscape of Canadian um, media, television, what's on, who gets shows. In my opinion, I feel like a lot of shows or people, personalities that are Canadian personalities, seem to it's the same people yeah we're not seeing any fresh new faces or, or people i look at someone like lily singh who is from brampton who has a huge youtube following yeah but yes she ended up on nbc in the states right like but she was right here right yeah, <laughs> yeah. so are you saying that it's it's because of systemic racism and discrimination that we're not getting these roles and the attention that we deserve? Is that what you're saying? Well, I, I think that probably plays a role, but I, I think more so it's, again, looking at who's at top, who's the gatekeeper, who's making the decisions, right? Who, if it's, you know, someone who doesn't relate, right? In terms of this is not something that they, you know, themselves would sit down and watch, then you're not going to get that stuff out there. And uh, somebody else made a point can't remember who I was watching something, but anyways, it's not even necessarily um, the one person at the top. Even if that one person at the top is an old white guy, if there are senior people from different ethnicities who are women, you know, et cetera, that are in that person's air, they can make a difference. That's so true. I'm not saying like, oh, get rid of all the old white men and, and <laughs> everything will be solved. But your team, right? The people who are there in pivotal roles need to reflect like the audience, the country. <laughs> That's know? true. That's true. So, right? Like so that so that you're having those other opinions. If everybody's monolithic, if everybody looks the same, then you're not gonna get anything different. You're gonna get the same stuff. And that's what you're getting on Canadian television, like year after year, it's the same stuff. And they'll sprinkle in something for a minute, right? So, and, and and the issue is, is that they can only have one, right? right. Like they have like Kim's Convenience. Okay, so we've, we've done, we have the Asian show, we have the, you know, um, that done. We can't have two. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> because we got one, right? But why, why can't you have two? Why can't you have three? Why can't you have five? God forbid the most um, diverse city in the world has more than, you know, two ethnic type shows on TV at the same time. Right. Right. And, and so that seems to be the thinking like, well, we've already we've already got that. Or, you know, if we have a panel like we, we have to have like one of each. Well, why can't we have four black people on a panel and right. it not be about black issues? That is just a panel of four black people with their expertise. Right. For some reason, there's this resistance to doing that. It always has to be like, okay, if we're, we're going to have four black people, they're going to be talking about race or they're going to be talking about, you know, <laughs> culture right. or Black Lives right. Matters or whatever. They, it can't be, oh, there's this uh, economics panel on CBC and they happen to be four black people from the university, from, you know, some political background or some newspaper. When has that ever happened? But you can have four white people doing that and nobody right. blinks an eye. I agree with you. And I think it's, it's you know, like you said, it's all about the, the gatekeepers and the people who are at 
at the top. And that's what people don't understand about privilege, right? Like when you don't have to think about that, it's a privilege, right? Like you said, if we were to see four black people on a panel, we would assume that it has something to do with police brutality, Black Lives Matter, something around black issues. But why can't it just be a bunch of experts who just know what they're talking about? Exactly. I would challenge anybody to send me like a screen grab of that conversation (laughs) where it's just, we're just talking about, I don't know, whatever, Trump, and it has nothing to do with race. Right. There's four black political experts. Well, Canada, pay attention. (laughs) We need to see some (laughs) some more black people on TV and some more people of ethnic backgrounds other than just one show. We need some more people in the producer room. We need some more people, you know, at the higher levels of organizations. And I've seen this, too. I mean, I I used to work in, in big organizations and, you know, financial companies and so on. And it's the same thing. You know, people can easily rhyme off. Yes, we have this many black people. We have this many Asians, this many Indians, this many, you know, people from the Latino community. Because you have to. That makes up the population. But when you ask where do they lie within the organization, that ceiling is very low. It's never at a higher level within the organization. And, you know, one of the things that a lot of finance companies and big technology companies do, and they do this really well, is they create so many levels within the organization so that people feel like they're at a level. So, for instance, you're a senior director. You're a a VP and then there's a SVP and then there's a supervisor and a senior supervisor. And so now when you're at like some level and you think, well, I'm a senior director. Yeah, but there's still five levels ahead of you. Right. And so I think that's one of the things that we have to understand when we're talking about making changes to lots of different, you know, systems and in society in general. You know, it's great to see one or two people in media, maybe on the news or whatever, but why can't we get people at higher levels within the organization, behind the camera, as lead roles on TV shows? Why, why can't we get all of that? Yeah, and, and I mean, again, like lead roles on TV shows, that it doesn't necessarily have to be about their race. That they just, you know, one of my favorite shows, My Guilty Pleasures, is Law and Order. And I like the fact that the police chief is a black woman. Yeah. And you know, they have had mentioned in one or two episodes where, you know, and it's not the episode is about that, where, you know, she might refer to a race, right? If there's, that's the, the story, right? But that's not why she's on the show. Right. She's just a Black woman <laughs> to, a, you know, a top level job. And, you know, that's the end of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. So tell me, you taught at um, Centennial College for a little while, as well, right? How did you kind of get into the teaching thing? Like, you, is there anything that you don't do? Like, you do everything. This woman does everything. <laughs> now you're teaching at a college. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I was doing that. I was still working. I started doing that when I was at City TV, and at that time, I was um, the president of the Canadian um, Association of Black Journalists. And we had established a scholarship program. And so I had approached the different colleges, the deans, whatever, to see, you know, how we could implement it. And Centennial was one of the ones that I had approached. And in speaking with the dean there, his name was actually Dean Nate. I think his name was Dean. Actually, anyways, in speaking with him, he, you know, was like, oh, would you be interested in... (laughs) teaching right and I was like I never really thought about it so he put me in touch with his 
the director for, for broadcast and journalism, Sheldon Reisler. And uh, we had a discussion. I was like, but I am working full time and I have two kids. And how am I going <laughs> to, like, what am I going to teach? And he's like, we can program it around your schedule and, wow. you know, what works for you. And so I was working at that time from, I think my shift was eight to four, right? And so I asked the um, city if I skip my lunch on my uh, teaching days and so I could leave at 3.30 and I could make it to the college in half an hour because it was close to the station. The class would start at four and it was a three hour class. So I teach from four to seven. And I don't even remember what wow. I did for childcare, but I, I arranged something with childcare. So, and I was, but it was only at first, it started off with like just one day a week, I think, something like that. By the time I finished six years later, I was teaching three times a week. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And, and at that, so, and then and by that time, I had moved back to morning television. So I would work. I would finish at 11 and then I would go and teach from like noon until three and then I would go home. So I would, was working literally from 3 a.m. to three in the afternoon. That is unbelievable. You know, I, I think that it's all about your work ethic and, and, and being open, right? Like that's the thing. Cause sometimes we make up our mind to do something, but you were just open to the opportunity. And it was the same. Like I, I, I was teaching at George Brown college for like three years while I was running my business as well. And again, it was this crazy schedule and people are like, well, why are you teaching when you're speaking and coaching and all that stuff? And I'm like, well, why not? <laughs> you know, I, I enjoyed it. I loved, you know, connecting with, with the students. And, and so I just did it and because I was just open to new experiences. Right. And so, I, man, that, I, I love the fact that you were <laughs> teaching as well, you know. Well, well totally, I mean, two things. One, what you're saying is connecting with the students, right? That definitely was something that I thoroughly enjoyed. And, and, you know, we both agree mentorship is so important. And there's students, I, two in particular, that I still am in contact with. Um, that So I, 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 I liked, you know, working with young people. I like, they keep me young. My kids yeah. keep me young, right? <laughs> and so that was one of the reasons. But the other reason that I decided to do it was because well, actually, two reasons. I wanted to have a fallback because <laughs> right? at that point, I wasn't sure. Again, like I was thinking, okay, if I want to do, you know, producing for the rest of my life, right. so maybe I can go to teaching after this. This would be a good way to get some experience, and and I can say, you know, if when and if something comes up, I have this experience, you know, teaching at a college, right? So that was one of the reasons that I did it as a sort of backup plan for, you know future use, which I can still use as well. And, you know, I just felt it also rounded me out uh, professionally, right? Because, you know, I wasn't, and a lot of, I knew a lot of other people in my field in, in, in journalism that also taught, right? When I was in journalism school, some of my teachers were, were working at the Toronto Star, or working at CBC. So I was like, okay, well, this is the thing that you're supposed to do. Right, <laughs> right. right. And, and, you know, if someone asks you, then this is actually quite, like, impressive. Like, <laughs> <laughs> You're a faculty <laughs> member. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, so that's why I decided to do it. And, and the only reason I, I stopped was that it was just getting to be a lot. It was just, it was a long day. Same and then, you. like, the, it, the classes just got bigger. and 
I think by the end of it, like one of my classes was like 40 or 50 kids. And just between that and as you know, the marking and all that sort of stuff, I was like, okay, (laughs) something's got to give. Yeah. Same with me. It just kind of started ballooning 50, 60 students, marking, grading, still trying to run my business. It just ended up being a lot. So yeah, I agree. I definitely agree with you there. So I got a couple more questions for you. One thing, and I know a lot of people want to know this, what what advice would you give to somebody who's trying to get some media attention? What are a couple of tips that you would give somebody right now who's like, I really want to get on TV or radio, newspaper or podcast? What, what advice would you give somebody right now? Well, my number one thing that I tell people is to make sure that your package is right. And so... What I typically find, and I think I've sort of almost incorporated this in my in my business as well, is I do like this website forensics. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now she's a CSI. Now she she <laughs> okay. Now she she does everything. I told you guys she does. Everything. I don't know if I just coined a new term, but I do a website forensics, and, and I go through your website and seven times out of ten, it's not very good, right? And so. I tell people, like, make sure that your website is, first of all, there's no spelling mistakes, right? And that it's reflective of what you're doing. It's up to date, um, that the content is good, you know, that it's easy to navigate. And it, and it shows what you want to do. So if you, if you want to position yourself like you as a speaker, then you need to have some samples of you speaking on your website. Right? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, And I can tell you that what producers and and, and chase producers and writers do is the first thing people do is Google you. It's the easiest thing to do. So if they Google you and they come up to your website and your stuff isn't together, right away, you're probably not going to get called for whatever it is that you want, right? Because it doesn't look like you're ready. You're not prime time ready. So I always tell people, make sure that your, your website is on point. Make sure that your social media, you know, is reflective it's not i discourage people business people from making their social media personal right if you want people to take you seriously you shouldn't be having yourself in you know bikini shots or <laughs> different yeah. things on yourself that that's open to everybody to see right like you you want to um, separate that. And you can do that. People, you can have a personal IG account and you have a business IG account and you make that one just available to certain people, right? You know, so I encourage people to make sure that it's reflective of what it is that you're promoting and it's, you know, professional and it's um, across the line, it, it's across the board, it, it's all in line with everything that your messaging is all the same, right? And I, I always give people the example of my stuff because I have to <laughs> practice what I preach, right? Yeah. So if you, you look at my stuff, the same picture is on all of my social media. The handle is very simple. That's the other thing I tell people. Don't get cutesy. <laughs> and don't make it like nobody can understand or nobody can find you when they do a search, right? Because that, that doesn't make any sense, right? So whatever your business is, mine is FKB Media. My full company name is FKB Media Solutions, right? But the short and simpler and snappier thing is FKB Media. And that's what my handle is across the board, right? So you know when you look me up, this is a person, this is the same picture, you know the blue and white, right? So there's no like, oh, I don't have to have the right person. And believe me, it happens. I have a client. His name is Parth Patel. And I didn't even realize, and, and this happened. 
true story is <laughs> that right there, there are a lot of park patels is a common indian name right. i pitched him to a publication desi desi news and then she wrote me back and she said oh we already did a whole like thing on him right a whole profile on him right and so i said to prep you didn't tell me you did they did something and he's like <laughs> and i said to her can you send me the link of the story and when she sent me it was a totally different guy right you know, so you may think you're the only one, <laughs> right? But I'm definitely not the only Danny Stone. And I'm glad you said that because I go by I am Danny Stone everywhere. My website, mm-hmm. all of my social medias, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, everything. And even new when new platforms come out, I just sign up and get I am Danny Stone. I just get them, right? Yeah. TikTok, everything. And so I'm glad you said that because my name is very, Danny Stone's a, a, a normal name. Oh, yeah. But you know, when I go to speak and stuff, people look up, I say, look up, I am Danny. And they, and I'm the only one that comes up. I'm the first one. I'm the only, I am Danny Stone. And it's really helped me because it's such a common name that people might, you know, I could get lost easily. So you're right. Find something that is your thing. Hey, it's whoever it's whatever at whatever, and try to be consistent. And then again, with the images, if you go to any of my social media, it's always the same image. And I think that's important for people to understand as well. It's, it's just that's branding one one, right? And it's, it sounds very basic, but a lot of people just don't do it. And I don't know why. <laughs> no, well, there you go. Now they will. And, and so what advice would you give somebody who's trying to connect with a producer or, um, you know, executive producer of a show or the editor of a, of a magazine or a newspaper? Like, how do people get in front of these people or how do you get to the right person? You got to do your research. So if I am a food business, right? And I want to get into a fancy magazine, cultural magazine. So going to go through the magazine and I'm going to look for the person who writes about what it is. Say I do, um, I don't know. Curry chicken. (laughs) My specialty is curry chicken. So I'm going to go and look through the person maybe who does cultural foods or who does, you know, um, chicken or, you know, meat dishes or whoever that is. Right. I want to you want to make sure that you first of all, that you target the right person, that you're not just sending it to the editor or sending it worse yet to the publisher because the publisher doesn't have anything to do with it. Trust me. They're the money person. Right. So you want to make sure you're targeting the right person. And then you want to send what's called a pitch, right? So you want to basically sell yourself as to why your story, your experience, whatever it is, would be interesting to their readers, right? And you have to be careful because sometimes you'll just get shuttled off to advertising and right. as in just pay for an ad, right? Right, right? So there has to be something distinctive about you that makes them say, hey, this is something like I can say, hey, like I am, you know, leading this new trend in organic curry chicken, right? And, you know, it's flying off the shelves and it's like, you know, we can't keep it in stock. And people are like, there was some Japanese cheesecake. People are lining up down the street for it or whatever. So now it becomes something that's newsworthy, right? And so like, yeah, we want to write about this this new organic chicken that people can't seem to get enough of. And it gets in that way. So you have to sort of position it as something that is, has a news hook, like I like to say, a news hook to it that will make them want to to do your story and make it interesting 
and make sure that their audience is an audience that would be interested in that. That's always the, the main thing. No, that's good. No, that's really good. I think that's going to be helpful. And the other thing that I, sorry, one other thing that I would say is, and again, this comes back to making sure that your package is right. I want to make sure that I have high res photos of my curry chicken. I want to make sure that I have a good headshot of myself, right? High res. I want to make sure that I have video of people lined up for my curry chicken. Like the easier you can make it for the reporter or the producer to see your story visually, the easier it will be for you to get your story in. The more work, I'm not trying to say that they're lazy, right? But I'm just saying the more work that they have to do to sort of wrap their head around something that maybe they weren't thinking of, it just becomes tedious for them, right? But the more you can serve it up like, hey, and I have some great video of all the lineups or I have some great product photos or I have, you know, um, Drake eating my curry chicken photo of him, right? Like all of those things are like little nuggets that are like, yeah, okay, maybe this is a story we should do. So that's what I would say is that make sure that you, you target the right person, that you put together a proper pitch and it doesn't have to be super long, right? Actually, don't make it super long. Right? Couple sentences. Better the better. Make it concise, right? Get to the point, right? And you know, make sure you have all of the elements, whether it's for digital or for television, that you have all of the elements to go along with your story. All right. Well, I'm definitely making some notes, and uh, I'm going to be doing all of that, <laughs> and probably reaching out for your help. That's great. So I have two final questions for you. But before I ask you these two questions, do you have anything that you want people to know? Where should they follow you? Or is there anything that they should know that you're promoting okay. right now? You can follow me. As I said, I'm very simple. You can follow me on Instagram and on Twitter at FKB Media. My website is fkbmedia.com. And I'm also on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is Fenella Bruce. So yeah, follow me. Hit me up. I'm always open to conversations. And in terms of things that I'm doing, man. <laughs> I shouldn't have asked that question. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I would say the two, the two key things I would probably want to pitch right now that I'm working on, or maybe three, is um, I'm working with a great woman, uh, Emily Mills, and she does something called How She Hustles. And right now, we're in the midst of Startup and Slay second annual Startup and Slay digital series, and it's a free event. It's, it's available to people every Wednesday in October, and it features two entrepreneurs um, that were picked out of 200 plus Canadian diverse women entrepreneurs who are basically slaying it in whatever entrepreneurial field they are in. So we have um, women talking about you know their experience and how they got to that position and great advice that may or may not help you, but it's still good to listen. And uh, it's on the house. Well, go to howshehustles.com and you can register. And again, it's free. So I would, I would advise everybody to check it out and it's a great network to connect to as well. And then I'm working just last night was the media release for launch party for um, Cinefam, which is, a film festival for women creators of color. And so cool. that takes place October 24th and 25th. Again, that is free. Awesome. And so just go to cinefam, C-I-N-E-F-A-M.com, .ca, either one. And uh, I believe it's .ca. And you can 
register um, for the films. And there's like great short films and there's a feature film um, on the 25th that people should check out. So those are the two main ones that I'm that I'm doing now, but I'm also getting ready for Miami Carnival again. Wow. <laughs> They're doing a live stream and I'm doing uh, stuff still with Auntie Jillian. And I have uh, another client, Moisey Fine Jewelry. And you probably saw um, Colleen Montague. She was on the cover of Canadian Jeweler Magazine. And that's, um, she's the first black woman to be on the cover in the magazine. Wow. 100 plus year history. Wow, that's amazing. That is amazing. Yeah, they're doing big things and they're opening a new um, store next month. So I'm working on that for them in Ottawa. So yeah, a lot of stuff happening. Well, I hope you're getting some sleep somewhere because wow, you are busy. <laughs> I'm trying. I, and that's the other thing that I, I, I had to learn when you coming back very quickly to your question of a struggle was balance. Because particularly when you're, and you, you know this, when you're working from home, you can continually work and work and work. And so you have to learn to draw that line. And I had to learn to do that, particularly with weekends and just, you know, not respond to things on the weekend it's because true. it's a slippery slope, right? Not respond to things after a certain time in, at night during the weekdays, or else you'll never shut it off, right? That's true. And so I've learned my, my, my favorite thing right now is scheduling emails. So I, I do respond to things right away and then I schedule it. <laughs> I love it. That's amazing. That's yeah. awesome. Well, let me ask you the two questions I ask everybody before we uh, wrap up here. What does it mean for you to grind and hustle? What does that mean to you? Well, grind means man working. And so... I definitely would say, and I think anybody will tell you that I'm always grinding. So even when, particularly once I started my business, like for me, any social event is a work event. There has to be a purpose yeah. <laughs> for me to go or else yeah. I'm not going. There has to be a business purpose or else I'm not, I'm not going. Right. right. So I'm always grinding. I'm always thinking. You know, uh, I'm not, I'm never stuck in the same place. I'm always thinking uh, the next thing or, or how to expand. I, with grinding, I, I'm very persistent. And I, I take some of that from my journalism background. You have to be, you have to, you know, persist to get answers, right? Particularly when people don't want to answer them. But also, uh, you definitely have to have a thick skin. And so you can't take things personal. Mm. And that's, I think, also as part of grinding where you can't let things set you back. Like you have to just keep grinding away even when your feelings might be hurt <laughs> or yeah. you're getting frustrated or things aren't going the way you are. You just keep keep at it and it will, it will come about, definitely. And then hustling, I'm definitely a hustler. <laughs> yeah, I can tell that. I can tell. <laughs> And in a good way, right? There's hustling that's not so good, right? But right. I'm a hustler in that, like, I'm always, I always got something on the go and I'm always trying to, you know, get things done. And I am a stickler um, for, for deadlines and being on time and, and not wasting people's time. And Me so too. I'm just that person that's just always, always hustling and I have a, a you know, a bunch of different balls in the air. I love it. And the very last question, what is gratitude to you? What does that mean to you? It's so funny you asked me that, Danny. I have this new meditation, and I listened to it this morning that I, I've been listening to since the summer. It's a 21-day meditation, gratitude meditation. 
Mm. And it's this woman and she's got the best voice ever. So soothing. But basically this meditation is just says, thank you for everything. Like, thank you for your bed. Thank you for your shower. Thank you for your floor. Thank you for every little thing that you take for granted. Thank you for this glass. And so I think gratitude is definitely humbling. I think you have to have gratitude. I learned that actually from Dr. Dennis Kimbrough, one of the Mm. first sort of self-motivational books that I ever read way back when I was in university. And so to have an attitude of gratitude, Yeah. right? And as long as you have that attitude, and, and that's one of the things that the meditation talks about, things will flow to you easily, right? And to me also, gratitude is not just about saying thank you when somebody does something for you. It's about saying thank you even when they haven't done something for you, yeah. acknowledging, right, the, the things that, you know, their presence in your life. And, and the effect that they have on you and the words that they say to you. So it doesn't have to be that, oh, I actually just did something for you. But it's recognizing that your place in my world is making my world better. And so I think that you have to have that attitude of gratitude or else life is going to be hard for you. It's <laughs> so true, especially right now with everything that's going on. Man, that's so great. You know what? Thanks so much for being here, Fenella. I know that normally you're you're not in front of the camera or you know <laughs> or the podcast mic or whatever, but you know I think that you really kind of shared a lot of nuggets here and a lot of things just about life that maybe we've forgotten about and we have to be reminded of. So you know, thank you so much for for being here on the show, and you know I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Danny. I like I can't even believe this time just flew by. And it was a very good conversation. You're a great interviewer. And uh, yeah, no, I don't do a lot of these things. But I mean, when you asked, I I couldn't say no. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. And um, yeah, we'll definitely connect uh, offline. Thanks so much for being here. You're welcome. All right. Thanks so much for being my co-host on this episode of the Grind and Gratitude Show. I really appreciate you. I hope that you learned something and you're motivated to take action and get on your grind. Didn't that go by fast? If you want more, head over to grindinggratitude.com for show notes and information about this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a rating so more people will know to tune in. And let me leave you with this. There's something special about you. Grind until you find it. Be grateful when you get it. Thank you.